All right, welcome back to our study of systematic theology. Um, it's hard to believe, but after tonight we will be halfway through this rather daunting study of 60 different sessions. This is our 30th. So uh, tonight we're looking at the extent of the atonement, and it's kind of wrapping up a, a recent session we've been on on, uh, on Christ's um, sacrifice here. We looked at the reason for Christ's death last time, which was just last week, and then before that we looked at the substitutionary atonement. Next time, when we begin our second half, um, and we'll figure out what, what evening we're going to do that on, we may switch to a different evening than Monday night, but uh, we'll be looking at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and that's going to kind of kick off uh, a little session here uh, on the Holy Spirit, uh, kind of introduce us to that. So we'll follow our, our kind of usual format. Uh, I'm going to introduce the topic by uh, reading an article related. Uh, this particular article was actually written by Dr. Sproul himself. It's not very long, but it, it just helps introduce the topic. Then we will go through our uh, overview and questions uh, to see what we learned from the video after we watch the video. Uh, you'll notice for the first time I had to print front and back on this one, so there is a, a, a lot to discuss in this session, and a lot to hopefully learn too. Um, and, I, and then we'll look at a chapter in our confession as well on this topic. I think it'll be important to read our confession and see what our confession says uh, about it. And I made some notes for myself as well, so hopefully I'll remember to interject those. But uh, let's, uh, let's get started um, by looking at this article here. Uh, on limited atonement. I think that all the five points of Calvinism, limited atonement is the most controversial and the one that engenders perhaps the most confusion and consternation. This doctrine is chiefly concerned about the original purpose, plan, or design of God in sending Christ into the world to die on the cross. Was it the Father's intent to send His Son to die on the cross to make salvation possible for everyone, but with the possibility that his death would be affected, effective for no one. That is, did God simply send Christ to the cross to make salvation possible, or did God from all eternity have a plan of salvation by which, according to the riches of his grace and his eternal election, he designed the atonement to ensure the salvation of his people? Was the atonement limited in its original design? I prefer not to use the term limited atonement because it is misleading. I rather speak of definite redemption or definite atonement, which communicates that God the Father designed the work of redemption specifically with a view to providing salvation for the elect, and that Christ died for his sheep and laid down his life for those the Father had given to him. <clears throat> One of the texts that we often hear Used as an objection against the idea of a definite atonement is 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. <clears throat> but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The immediate and antecedent of the word any in this passage is the word us, 
And I think it's perfectly clear that Peter is saying that God is not willing that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to salvation. He's not speaking of all mankind indiscriminately. The us is a reference to the believing people to whom Peter is speaking. I don't think we want to believe in a God who sends Christ to die on the cross and then crosses his fingers, hoping that someone will take advantage of that atoning death. Our view of God is different. Our view is that the redemption of specific sinners was an eternal plan of God, and this plan and design was perfectly conceived and perfectly executed so that the will of God to save his people is accomplished by the atoning work of Christ. This does not mean that a limit is placed on the value or the merit of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's traditional to say that the atoning work of Christ is sufficient for all. That is, its meritorious value is sufficient to cover the sins of all people. And certainly, anyone who puts his or her trust in Jesus Christ will receive the full measure of the benefits of that atonement. It is also important to understand that the gospel is to be preached universally. This is another controversial point, because on the one hand, the gospel is offered universally to all who are within earshot of the preaching of it. But it's not universally offered in the sense that is offered to anyone without any conditions. It's offered to anyone who believes. It's offered to anyone who repents. Obviously, the merit of the atonement of Christ is given to all who believe and to all who repent of their sins. So that's kind of an introduction, and, and we're going to get into, okay, who is it that believes and repents of their sins? Uh, so yeah, let's go ahead and uh, let's pause, and we'll watch our video and listen to what uh, Dr. Sproul has to say on the, on the subject, and we'll come back and go through our overview and discussions. All right, well, we have just watched our video uh, on the extent of the atonement. I think it was uh, very, very helpful. I mean, I, I think this whole series is helpful, but some of them are just particularly helpful to me. I think this one was one of those. Let's go through our sheet here. Let's uh, look at our overview and our questions. And uh, like I said, we'll read a little bit from our confession and have some good discussion, I hope. So, uh, the extent of the atonement, introduction. The extent of Christ's atonement is the most controversial issue in any discussion of Christ's work as our Savior. Here we discuss the subject of limited atonement, also known as definite atonement, in addressing the question, for whom did Christ die? Overview. Perhaps the most controversial issue surrounding the atonement is its extent. The Christmas Calvinist, quote-unquote, is someone who has, uh, has no L, meaning they do not believe in limited atonement. Uh, this comes from the tulip acrostic uh, that was developed in Holland in response to the Roman Strance, a group of semi-Pelagian theologians. The L stands for limited atonement. And I went ahead and listed out the rest of the tulip in case you aren't already familiar with it. Uh, T is total depravity. U is unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. Uh, many believe four points, sorry for the typo. Many believe four points but reject the L. They may call themselves Calminians. That's a, kind of a play on words between Calvinists and Arminians. Um, as this, that's usually how we boil down many of our, our arguments about the doctrines of grace. So you have the Calvinists and the Arminians. 
what is not meant by the idea of limited atonement? The biblical idea of limited atonement is not best summarized by these two words. This problem is inevitable when reducing a complicated doctrine to two words. <clears throat> this discussion is not about the value of Christ's sacrifice, for the value of the atonement was infinite once and for all. Now, some pastors say limited atonement means Christ's atonement was sufficient for all, but efficient <clears throat> for some. This description, however, is not sufficient because outside of universalism, Jesus' atonement is not applied efficiently to all people for any concept of the atonement. Jesus did not die to obtain the possibility of salvation for some. However, some evangelists tend toward universalism by claiming Jesus died for everyone in the same way. Uh, this creates the possibility that all will be saved. So you can see how theoretically that could lead to universalism. Um, in the Arminian view, salvation is designed in potential or conditional terms. It's the individual's faith that determines the efficiency of the atonement. Unless you choose to believe, Jesus' work has failed. In this view, if Jesus' atonement actually pays for our sin debt to God, and he then sends sinners to hell, God is guilty of punishing the same sins twice. Uh, just to flesh that out, Christ's substitutionary atonement punishment, and then the individual's second death punishment. That would mean God saves only potentially, and does not necessarily save someone from his wrath. How was the atonement designed? Who was the designer? God is the planner. Why did God send Christ to die? Was it merely for God to pace up and down heaven's streets, hoping that someone would accept his son's sacrifice? Hypothetically, Jesus could die for everyone, universalism, or for nobody, futility. A well-known Christian leader said millions of people would be lost without the results of that discussion. But, is salvation of man or of God? Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. This does not sound like potential salvation. In one sense, the offer of the gospel is not universal, for the promises of the gospel are only offered to the believing, repentant sinner. God enables such a response, thus enabling us to meet his conditions. And so it is accurate to say that the gospel is offered only to those who respond in faith. If the gospel offer isn't universal, can the atonement of Christ be universal? Every person for whom Christ died is saved. Jesus died only for the elect. What about passages that say Jesus died for the world? These passages have been misrepresented by those from the semi-Pelagian perspective to mean Jesus died for every single person in a potential way. But they refer only to the racial reality of the atonement, that Jesus died for Jews and non-Jews. Jesus died for Gentiles. Did Jesus die for Satan or other fallen angels? No, and we accept this limit to atonement easily. How can anyone embrace four points of Calvinism and not embrace limited atonement? Total depravity, when rightly understood, makes particular atonement absolutely necessary. Unconditional election, when rightly understood, makes particular atonement absolutely necessary. The five points of Calvinism cannot be logically held separately. 
The cross is a part of God's eternal plan of redemption, and it was his intention that Christ not die in vain, but that he accomplish his goal to save the elect. So turn with me on the back side to our, our questions and answers. Uh, kind of a refresher reminder of what we've learned. What is another way to state, quote-unquote, limited atonement? Here we looked at definite atonement. The atonement is sufficient, but it isn't applied to all people. Salvation is definite for the elect. For whom does the Reformed view hold that Christ's atonement was designed and intended? Only for the elect. Every person for whom Christ died is saved. What does scripture mean when it says Christ dies once, quote unquote, for all the world? It means all peoples, notice the S there, all peoples all around the world. Christ died for a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, but not for every person individually. What theological view is made obsolete by belief in hell? Universalism. If there is even one person in hell, universalism cannot be true. The doctrine of limited atonement teaches that Jesus died to make salvation what? Actual. Salvation is not simply made possible by Christ's death, but actually paid the debt of all his elect. Salvation is a completed work. It is finished. What doctrine of grace do four-point Calvinists, quote-unquote, usually reject? Limited atonement. So total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints all make limited atonement necessary. So now let's uh, let's get into uh, our discussion, and then we'll wrap up our discussion by reading uh, from chapter 10 of our confession to see exactly um, what our confession has to say on the matter. And hopefully I'll remember to mention some of my notes here in our discussions. Uh, so first question... How is universal atonement different from the doctrine of universalism, and how is it similar? What's the difference between just universalism and a universal atonement? So universalism is the idea that everybody's saved, right? It doesn't matter what, what we do, what we say, what we believe, what we confess. Um, everybody is saved. That's universalism. So universal atonement would be that Christ's atonement can universally apply to every person. Uh, there's still a condition there, right, whether they respond faith and, and repentance, but that the atonement universally applies to, to every person if they, if they you know, profess so that would be the difference. Everyone is definitely saved, that's universalism, versus everyone is potentially saved, that would be universal atonement. Okay, what problem does particular atonement, or limited atonement if you prefer, solve, and what encouragement does it give? idea of a God that is either complete or incomplete. You know, if there's, without definite atonement, limited atonement, particular atonement, um, you have a God that doesn't know the future, 
and doesn't know the full plan of salvation. He only knows the start of it. Right. So one of the problems solved is the sovereignty of God, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because if, if, <laughs> if you don't have limited atonement or definite atonement, um, then you, you get into all these problems of, well, is God truly sovereign? Is God truly almighty? Um, you know, if, if he, there's only a potential salvation for some people and, it, and it's up to them based on what they do, a workspace salvation, right? Then that, that takes away from the sovereignty of God. So it definitely, definitely solves that problem. Um, how, how does it, how does it give us encouragement though? I think that it, the biggest encouragement to me has always been evangelism, uh, because without particular atonement, that puts the salvation of that person on my shoulders and my presentation and my, you know, my persuasion to them versus God doing the work, and me just simply delivering the gospel message that is laid out in scriptures. Right. Uh, could you repeat what Josh, Josh said? So Josh is talking about um, the encouragement from it, it takes the burden off your shoulders in, in evangelism and, and witnessing because it's not on you and how eloquent you are and how well you know your scripture and you know how educated you are to, to bring someone to faith, right? Because it's, it's not your work that's being done. Um, it, it, it takes that burden off the shoulders of the evangelist knowing that the, the power is in, in the Word of God. The power is not in my words or what I know. But, but that we're being faithful to proclaim the Word of God. Yes, and that's in my notes. I'm going to talk about you know, the, the opposite extreme of hyper-Calvinism, so I wanted to get into that in our discussions. But yeah, we'll, we'll get to that for sure. Um, so what are some of the objections uh, to limited atonement? We talked about it being such a controversial issue. So why do people object? I think one of the biggest ones that I've come across is that it almost gives people cause to say that God is mean in a way. Um, you know, the whole argument of why, why would God create someone just to go to hell? Mm. Um, so I think it, it, some people say that it causes or paints God in a very menacing light rather than a fatherly figure that cares. So would you say more often than not it's usually an emotional objection? Yeah. Um, I've also come across um, people that, you know, that have the that have the concern of, well if it's limited atonement, then how do I know that I'm one of the ones that God chose? Then you get into assurance of salvation, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a whole different uh, subject to discuss, right? A whole different class. Um, Kyle, I Oh, good. Yeah, Misty actually made that same comment before we called you. So, <laughs> uh, so what are some problems of believing some points of Calvinism uh, without embracing particular or limited atonement? Why is that a problem? Why, why can't I say I'm a four-point Calvinist? Well, I think that 
Oh, why shouldn't I? I mean, can't say it, but why shouldn't you say it? Right, so let's just take an example. Let's look at the T. Okay, let's say I don't believe in limited atonement, but I believe in total depravity. Well, then how do you explain that that man is going to have it within himself, being totally depraved, to choose God, to decide for himself through his own sinful will, totally depraved, sinful will, to choose righteousness? That, that isn't to- You don't have a right understanding of total depravity if you think that's possible. So the two are intertwined together. It has to be a work of God, not a work of man, if man is totally depraved. And just to understand total depravity, not to get off subject too much, it doesn't mean that everything we do is wicked, everything we do is evil, it just means that sin has infected every single part of us. Okay, so you had brought up a a question... uh, Laurel about um, still being, you know, commanded to uh, evangelize. I mean, we do have uh, the Great Commission, you know, there in, in, in Matthew and, and other places that we are commanded to witness and to give our testimony. So uh, you hear this argument, well, if the elect is true, then God's already decided, you know, who's saved. Therefore, evangelism and witnessing is unnecessary and I can... I can stay home, sit on my couch, and, and that's fine. I don't have to worry about proclaiming the gospel to anybody. Well, that's what we, we view as hyper-Calvinism, and it falls apart when you read your scripture because we are indeed commanded to do so. So just right off the top of the bat, you can say, well, we're violating the commands of Christ, right? So even if we stop there, that would be enough to say we got to get off the couch and we got to go you know, evangelize, we got to give our testimony just because Christ said so. Um, but you can dig deeper than that and you can look at, well, you know, who, who, who benefits from a believer witnessing and evangelizing? And you realize it's, you're not just talking about um, kingdom work in the sense that God is using you as a tool to bring someone to faith, which he would have done through another means anyway, because he, if that person is part of the elect, but God is actually sanctifying you in the process as well. So the benefit is not just for the person being witnessed to, the benefit is for the pers- person witnessing as well. Um, and we certainly as believers do not want to miss out on that benefit, and we do not want to stunt our growth and sanctification, right? So, so that's why hyper-Calvinism is not a good place to go. <laughs> Well, okay, there we get into a whole other discussion between God's will and the two types of will that God has, whether it's his declarative will or, but I mean, that's a whole other, another discussion. There's, there's the will and that what he wills will come to pass, right? And then there's a, a, a will and, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher this, but there's a will and, uh, what, you know, would, desi- like what we would desire and what we do can be, Different. Does that make sense? Right. So, um, 
Yeah, there, we know from Scripture, from what we are told, that no one's going to be saved that doesn't repent and believe. Right? There's no ex, no exception clause to say, well, except for this group of people, it doesn't matter if they repent or believe. Um, but this all comes down to, is it a work of God, is it a work of man, right? If we're totally depraved, will we repent and believe without the work of the Holy Spirit working within us in our lives to, to repent and believe? Are we, we called by the Holy Spirit to repent and believe, or do we make a decision on our own to do so? And that's really what this comes down to, right? So is this decision theology, or is this the sovereignty of God? Right, and that's where you get into the whole uh, Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, you know, uh, theology that God even has the ability to do that, and it's it's a denial of total depravity is what it is. So that's why we talked about you you can't have one without the other. Correct. Correct. All right, let's see. I was checking my notes to see if I um, skipped anything I wanted to mention. Um, I just mentioned a, a, a couple of things here. Um, that God, God doesn't need our help. <laughs> so that's another way to look at it too. So that's the problem with potential salvation, right? It's like suggesting that God wants you to be saved, but He needs your help. He needs you to meet Him halfway. So that, that takes away from the sovereignty of God. Um, and I already mentioned talking about talking about um, why even as a Calvinist we would still continue to evangelize and witness that um, we have to remember we're, a we're commanded but b it's for our own sanctification and it's for for our good and His glory uh, to do so. And we are and I think Sproul did a pretty good job talking about the difference between the sufficiency and the application of Christ's atonement. Um, so I, I, there's no confusion there, right? Understanding the difference between those two, that yes, while Christ's atonement was sufficient for any anyone that's ever lived, um, that is true, uh, but it doesn't apply to anyone that's ever lived. All right, so let's go ahead now. Let's turn to, uh, we're going to look at chapter 10 of our confession. Um, again, for those of you who aren't already familiar with our confession, this isn't scripture, but this is a summary of what we believe scripture teaches. It's very helpful for us to, um, you know, put put it together in this way so that uh, it's easy for us to to help understand what we, as a local body and uh, as a universal church outside these walls, if, if we're in agreement on our theology, what what we believe, um, especially when when we're asked questions, right? And this gets into the, the biggest topics of, uh, of theology and of God and man. And this particular um, chapter is chapter 10. And it's titled, Of Effectual Calling. So this is uh, right up the alley of what we're talking about here. Uh, so I'll go ahead and read it. There are, if you have a copy of the confession, you will see that there are scripture references for each paragraph 
So if you're curious about, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Or, or how did our brothers and sisters come to this conclusion? Um, you can look at these scripture references to help understand. All right, paragraph one. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they were by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. So we can see uh, in the language there, talking about basically it being a work of God, not a work of man, that we are called. Paragraph 2. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with his special grace, the creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. So here it really alludes to total depravity, right, in this paragraph. And it shows that we need the Holy Spirit to enable us to respond in faith and repentance. We cannot do it on our own. Paragraph 3. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. So that's one of the common objections you get. You know, what about, um, you know, maybe babies that aren't even born yet or babies that aren't old enough to understand yet. So we, we actually have a paragraph here in our confession that talks about it and talks about God's sovereignty to save uh, even, even those little ones uh, according to his perfect will. Paragraph four. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved by they never so diligent to, excuse me, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. So here we, we see kind of an admittance that, that you do have the, what you call pro- professing believers, but not true believers, um, or some like to say cultural Christians, right? So they, they profess to be Christians, but they truly have never been called by the Holy Spirit to faith and repentance. And I know that's a particular problem, right, in, in, in our country. There's many... Many nations throughout the world where that's not such a problem because it's to your detriment to profess to be a Christian. Um, but for many, many decades here in our country, it's been the opposite. There's been a, a, a social benefit to being part of a church and claiming to be a Christian. So we've seen a lot of cultural Christianity in our nation. So any questions on chapter 10 there of our confession and what we just read?
All right, well, just overall, do, do we have any uh, thoughts, concerns, questions you want to discuss? I know this, like we said, it's a controversial topic. It's one that's often objected to by, by many and, and difficult to, to understand or accept by many. Um, but I, I think if, you, if we break it down like we looked at today and, and you can further do research into it, I encourage you to do so. You'll see that uh, biblically it, just, it doesn't stack up otherwise. There's just really no other interpretation that, that um, satisfies all of Scripture, the whole counsel of God. You can, you can certainly cherry-pick verses and come up with all sorts of different theologies, but um, I think the doctrine of election really comes down to the whole counsel of God. All right, last call. Any thoughts? Well, I hope, you, hope this was... Um, very informative and transformative. Um, I don't know, we may have gone a little bit longer than usual, but I think uh, I think it was worth it on a heavy topic like this. Um, Josh, would you close us in prayer real quick? Yes. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son and his righteousness. And apart from him, we have no part with you. We thank you so much for this opportunity to come and meet together and learn more about you and discuss your word and your plan for salvation with one another. We thank you for revealing these truths within your word so that way we don't have to be so left in the dark about things. We thank you for preserving your word throughout these many, many generations. And we thank you for raising up men in the church to explain it and bring it forward to us. Uh, we ask that you please forgive us for our neglect of studying and the errors that we've made and possibly even still make. And we ask that you would please continue to illuminate us to your truth and that you would continue to preserve this nation, that it would be a safe place for us to seek after you without having to hide. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.